As you might imagine, uh, being a pastor can expose you to how a broader number of people think and live, which is a privilege that I take seriously, but it also is a kind of diversity to which you're exposed, and that can be quite interesting, even shocking. In 18 years of ministry, I've been with individuals and families in the middle of many, many situations, some really joyous and wonderful, some of them agonizing and unthinkable. Around five years into ministry, I coined this phrase, and I think it was after coming home from a situation, I coined this phrase, at least I think I coined it, maybe I didn't, and the phrase is, there's no normal. There's no normal. It's kind of a mental exercise for me that acts like the suspension on my mountain bike that makes all of the ruts and rocks and roots and often unpredictable terrain more manageable as you're moving at probably too fast across it, right? And the path of pastoral ministry is also unpredictable like that. But of course, so is life. So I was less shocked than you might imagine uh, when a very sincere a very faithful, very fervent couple at my former church, recent empty nesters in their mid-50s, casually mentioned on a medical missions trip that they were nudists. <laughs> I know, if you thought you were going to sleep during this time right here, I, I got your attention, at least for a little while, right? <laughs> to them, it just wasn't a big deal. Suffice it to say that one of my more interesting pastoral journeys came in my mid-30s. I wonder how I might handle it now in my mid-40s, but um, yeah, you're going to be thinking about that probably for the next <laughs> 20 minutes, but how did he handle that? Of course, right, that's arguably a more extreme example of there's no normal, right? But if you're unconvinced by this idea, maybe just do an experiment. Go on vacation with three or four other families, people you think you know well enough, but in close proximity for an extended amount of time. Try it. Don't be judgmental. Just observe a little bit, because you know what? They're going to be doing the same. Just go. It's hard to tell, you know, if, if there ever really was a such thing as the kind of normal that I'm talking about, right? But we operate with this, this sort of uh, expectation. You know, most of us probably operate with an unconscious expectation. Well, this is what's normal. But we do actually live in a time when community and familial ties have weakened in some cases, and you know, they've, they've, some cases they've eroded entirely. Um, neighborhoods aren't the sort of thick social places, and in some cases, you know, they, or that they used to be, and in some cases, we just don't even really have a neighborhood, though we live in one. You can live in one and not have one, right? Interstates, air travel, and now the internet have made us more socially diffuse, spread out. Thin. So we share less in common with one another in terms of everyday kind of localized customs and norms and practices because, well, we just aren't here, at least not fully here. We're transient. We're not together, at least not for long. And that's different. To boot, the interaction that we do have seems to be increasingly performative, right, and comparative. Thanks to the forces of workism, if you didn't know that's a word, that's a word. I can send you an article that talks about that. And the forces of consumerism, you knew that was a word and a thing. And then social media has brought us together only to tear us apart. And though we're more visible, think about this, to more people, we're generally more hidden and more isolated from others than ever. So, and you know, we, we have the notion of identity in our time that was once shaped 
significantly in community, and now it's just careening down the greasy highway of modern individualism with no one at the wheel. What does it even mean to be a person anymore? I'm not trying to bang the the bad news drum here. I really am not. I'm just saying it's probably more challenging now than ever to have our norms in common. But the important question for today is this, what's normal for us, the church? What's normal for us? What passes for normal Christian worship or the basic Christian moral vision? It's kind of a real grab bag, isn't it? Like much of life, many of these differences that we have, many of these diversities, you know, they are merely preferences. They're just emphases. They're banal. They're, they're secondary. They're cultural. They're not wrong. They're not right. They're just different. But some differences are massively important. Some norms really, really matter. That's where I think this reading in Hebrews is taking us today. So much of Scripture takes us to that. What's the normal way followers of Jesus, this is the question, the normal way followers of Jesus faithfully run this metaphorical endurance race, particularly in terms of its challenges, particularly in terms of sin and suffering? How do we do this normally? But first, to help us think about the stakes of normal a bit, you know, maybe to think about how this can this can become really problematic when our norms get out of sort. Let's think back to the church in the century between the 1860s and the 1960s for a minute. If during this era you profess to be a fervent, outspoken, church-going Christian, you are, you'd most likely be pursuing or at least supporting the abolition of slavery, desegregation, and racial equality, right? Maybe not. Apparently, you could have been a completely different kind of fervent, outspoken, church-going Christian, very serious about Christian morality, but with no active concern about such matters, or worse, an opposition to them. That's not normal. For some Christians still living today, the decades leading up to the 60s are like this golden age of American Christianity. If only we could just recover it. And yet this era was anything but golden for black Christians or for the many evangelicals of every race who labored long and hard for their brothers and sisters in Christ against whatever form institutional racism was taking at the time. They did this because as far as the Holy Scripture was concerned, it was normal. As far as the early church was concerned, it was normal. It was new creation, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, uh, male nor female, Rich nor poor, love your neighbor as yourself, Christianity. That's what it was. Just the basics, really. But somehow it wasn't normal for a staggering number of professing Christians. Not somehow, actually. Precisely because of entrenched, entangling sin to which many were oblivious. According to Pew Research and a recent analysis by the historian Daniel K. Williams, which I'm happy to share the link to if you want that, this shadow of what I just talked about remains long in our land. Many who claim evangelical Christianity today decreasingly, this is what the study shows, they decreasingly go to church or never did, and they don't read the Bible and never have. Yet they are outspoken, contentious, nationalistic, and enamored with political power, as though that's basic to Christianity. It's not normal. And they are the ones many in our nation think of when they think of the church. 
All this to say, our norms really matter. We have to remain serious about them lest any of us get off the path. All of us can do this by just one degree, and over time and over distance, we find ourselves far from the heart of God, from the heart of the church, personally and corporately. Now, there are two particular essential Christian norms in our Hebrews lesson today, and I think they're vital, actually, to any manner in which the church can begin to be shaped in any given culture where we can get off by one degree and become way, from the heart, way away from the heart of God. Two norms that really, really matter. Two basic ways of believing and living that bring the gospel out of abstraction, out of moralism, and into genuine action as a faith that can persevere through temptation and suffering. A faith that can persevere through temptation and suffering. Remember this. And Hannah talked about it last week, and listen to that message if you haven't already. Perseverance is a central theme of Hebrews. Perseverance, for the sake of the faith, is normal. The first norm related to perseverance is the presence and threat of sin. Among the many other things we share with this great cloud of witnesses that we, we hear about in verse 1, and their story is told before we get to chapter 12, these, these, we share with this great cloud of witnesses uh, who finished this race and have now become our biggest fans, we share the normal and just encumbering challenges of personal and corporate sin. It's ever-present. It's real. It's always there. Normal Christianity pays constant attention to this. It pays constant attention to the presence and encroachment of a soul-deep and systemic lie that says we are our own gods. We own our own nations, that the world actually belongs to us, and that we are the best available arbiters of what's good and what's evil. It's the mindset of sin and the assumption, the presumption of sin. Sin, by definition, is a trespass upon, what's, uh, upon what God created holy and sacred. And let me tell you this, there are way more holy and sacred things than you might think there are. Just look around. They're all around you all the time. God's world, the created order, is holy and sacred. Sacred bodies, sacred relationships, sacred communities, and sacred even institutions meant to advance peace and flourishing. Sin is the falling short. It's the selling short. It's the selling out of the purpose and the meaning and the potential of created life. It's what it is. To put it mildly, sin is like a car thief running from the police behind the wheel of your granddad's 65 Chevelle. It's messing everything that matters up. Talking about the power of sin, C.S. Lewis once wrote, good and evil both increase at compound interest. He said, that is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. It's really what the author of Hebrews is on about, right? Sin threatens our perseverance, our authenticity and faith. Not that we need to keep talking about nudity, but verse 1 of Hebrews 12 encourages a metaphorical stripping down from sin. The entanglements like Roman marathon runners who ran completely naked. If you've ever run long distance and you've ever trained to do so, you know as well as I do that you'd better be wearing the right socks. You'd better be wearing the right shirt and the right shorts and even the right underwear or none at all. 
Because over time, the chafing and the blistering will make you want to cry and go home. I was about to say, can I get a witness? For the author's contemporary audience, they, they would have been, tend to wear more loose-fitting clothing. You know, they didn't have spandex then. Um, so this loose-fitting clothing meant that they could get tangled up and they could fall. So metaphorically speaking, they should respond by laying aside anything, any extra weight, and, and this kind of clothing that could tangle them up and take them down. Because they, because we have a long way to run. In real terms, this disentanglement, what does it mean? It means honesty about our vulnerability to sin. You might be really good at the stuff you do. You might be a perfectionist who works really, really hard. But you're vulnerable to sin. It means a humility to confess that sin. It means a desire to turn from that sin. And it means the accountability to guard against it. The community to guard against it. To help you. It does not mean self-justification. It doesn't mean self-protection. It doesn't mean cultural capitulation to whatever the norms of our culture are that say that sin is. It certainly doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean an uncritical affirmation that just trivializes sin. So it may or may not be, really be a thing. Stripping down means a kind of willing exposure, which we don't like. A willing exposure, but here's the thing, without shame. And why? What does the author of Hebrews tell us in verse 2? That the shame was actually something that Jesus, at least one translation says, despised. Or in our current one today, says something a little different, I think. He took it upon his naked body on the cross. So the first important norm is seriousness about the entanglement of sin that threatens our ability to run well and to run far in faith. If we're honest, we know the more reluctant that we are to acknowledge sin as such. I want you to just think about this for a minute. The more reluctant we are to acknowledge sin as such, the less desire and capacity we have to believe and endure. The more we try to carry of our, of our proclivities and our desires, and the more we make room for sin, it begins to choke out the motivation and the love that we have to keep going. Our excuses are a powerful disincentive and discouragement to remain faithful. So hear this as an encouragement today. The second important norm we share with the great cloud is our relationship to suffering as both inevitable but also redemptive, regardless of what form the pain comes in or why it happens. It's inevitable but also redemptive. Whether it's overt persecution, which is rare for us, right? Whether it's physical pain, relational trauma, or something else. This pastor who wrote Hebrews, he tells us that a loving Heavenly Father is present and purposeful through it. To, at the very least, legitimize our belonging to Him. We are always God's children in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. And it is fundamentally that nearness to God that only happens uniquely when we are suffering. Um, even when we don't feel Him and don't think He's there, He is near to us and there is something powerful about that atmosphere. And this is, I think, assumed in what he's saying here. And this part is important. He, go, he quotes Proverbs 3 there and he qualifies what might seem like punishment 
as discipline instead. So he brings in the reality that, of course, uh, you know, we had earthly fathers who punished us, and, we, and God himself is going to come alongside to redirect us. But the truth, what, what he's taking it and doing is he's making a, a, a broad, helping us with a broader understanding about that it's working for something as discipline. When he says in verse 7, endure trials for the sake of discipline, this means it is precisely not that we're suffering for our sin, ignorance, or weakness, as though it's a punishment for those. Not hardly, because the Apostle Peter said, Jesus suffered once, or suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. That's where we begin in all of our sin and suffering as Christians, in a place of belonging to God. In this nearness to our loving Heavenly Father, in our reconciled relationship to Him, what might feel like punishment, what certainly is discipline, in this we expect that He can and will take the inevitable and often senseless pain of life, because we can't make sense of it, right? There's just no clean theology of suffering to be found. And I think that's the nature of suffering itself. It's confounding, right? So, whether it's self-inflicted or not, he is making it a way in which he's working to recover our created dignity by training our hearts through hardship. We don't want that. But he trains our hearts through hardship uniquely. How? Just think about it. Suffering has the ability to bring reality into finer focus, our mortality into finer focus as we hear from the other readings in our scriptures today, from the psalm, right? As we hear from Jeremiah. It can help us see the problem of sin for what it really is. It's devastating, especially when we're suffering because of our sin or someone else's. It helps us take sin more seriously. The experience of suffering can help us see the world through the eyes of God. There's something wrong here. It can also help us see where our lives are off by even one degree and suddenly heading in the wrong direction. It can train our once hard, and this is the big one, y'all. He can train our once hard and our shallow hearts in the soft but deep work of mutuality and empathy and mercy and compassion, which is our calling. How, if we have not suffered, do we have the ministry of healing to others? How can we know? We may not like that that's the trajectory or that's the way, but it's necessary. Suffering can put us on our knees where we belong. As the priesthood of believers, we really are doing what? Interceding for a groaning world. If we don't do it, who will? This is what it means to learn discipline and obedience through suffering. It means becoming more fully and more honestly human in a painful and deceptive world. We don't like that it's true. But this encouragement from Hebrews is to help us understand that it is normal for God to be at work in us through suffering. And maybe that's the only thing that makes sense if it does. No doubt you have friends who've walked away from the faith because it began to make no sense in the light of the immediate circumstances or the questions or the temptations that they were facing. I have those friends. It may have been a kind of suffering that once seemed unthinkable for them. It may have been a sudden awareness of deeper questions for which there has never been an easy answer. It may have been the lonely 
really lonely and seemingly insurmountable struggle that we have with sin, especially those private ones. They're withering, isolating. We all know that someone. Maybe we've been that someone. Maybe you are that someone right now. Jesus gets it. You know, he once described this struggle in a parable about a seed that falls on good soil and springs up happily. But then life happens. The cares of the world, among other things, try to choke us out. And sometimes they succeed, at least for a little while. Hopefully not ultimately. And Jesus isn't just carving people up with that parable. What he is saying is, this is what I came for. This reality. We get choked out sometimes. Honestly, there are some significant things in mine and Ashley's life right now that have us really struggling to trust in ways that we haven't experienced in a while, if ever. We've been reminded that faith, it's just true, guys, faith feels fundamentally different when you can't envision a clear way out of the pain or the problem. You can't engineer your world out of what's going on. Perseverance in those times goes beyond just being a value, a Christian norm, right? It becomes a molar grinding moment by moment reality that you live in. To persevere in faith, to hold on to God, or at least believe He's holding on to you when you have trouble keeping any grip at all. So friends, this letter to the Hebrews is meant for people long ago, facing the very things that we face now, which are the very things people faced even before them. That's the story it's telling. It's a story about being together in this. The author says the normal Christian response to the difficulty of endurance is singular, and it is shared. What should really rise to the top here in this reading, he says we keep looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And let me tell you something. We don't do platitudes around village. This is not a platitude, and it's not esoteric, right? As if it's about trying to see a vision of Jesus just smiling lovingly in a great blue yonder with some beautiful outcome where everything is okay. That is not what he's saying. I recently heard Kate Bowler, who um, experienced stage four cancer. I think maybe it's it's returned. I'm not sure. She's an author. She uh, teaches at Duke. She reminded people, don't tell suffering people it's going to be okay. And that's not what he's doing here. He's saying, see the risen Lord, but see Him through the cross. Through His own suffering. See the God of the universe who suffered in a world full of suffering. Who was tempted by sin. He was tempted by enticing shortcuts. Just as we are. See the hostility He faced. See the blood He shed. This Jesus, He says, was and is the pioneer and perfecter of faith itself in a hard world. In other words, he went first and he went best over the distance and through the darkness. He went first and best through the hardship of having a body, because it's hard. And of facing life against the grain of corrupt culture and of evil empire and of bad religion. He went first and best through the pain of betrayal and of abuse and shame. He went first and best to challenge the kind of shallow peace that unites people, even family members, toward misguided and even destructive outcomes. And that's what our gospel is about today. Jesus went first and best through hell. 
He went first and best through hell for us. That's what we look at. Hebrews 5, 7-9 makes it clear. Although Jesus was the Son, He too learned obedience through what He suffered. And having been made perfect, He became the source. The source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. In other words, Jesus' own cries and tears and prayers and supplications brought Him nearer to the heart of God for the world. Uniquely through His own experience of fear and suffering. His real experience of it. That's the Jesus we look to. Not just the Jesus who overcame, but the Jesus who suffered. And some might say is still suffering. Because we're still suffering. He is the one, the only one who helps us make sense of a broken world and a difficult path of faithfulness. Jesus went first and best for the joy. The joy of ensuring that all of our running, all of it, which includes all our stumbling, it includes all our injury, all of our sin, all of our suffering, our cries and tears and prayers, He ensures that this will unite us in Him to the Father. Because Jesus ran first and best, there is a scarred body in heaven. Look to Him. His is a story of the anguish of life and death that begins and ends and begins again. Philosopher, I'm going to close with this, Soren Kierkegaard, some of you may be familiar with, he said it well, life must be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. That's a dilemma. If you think of that in terms of our shared story with so many who have run before us, we have a great privilege. We are living our lives forward, but we have a great cloud of witnesses who are helping us understand life backward so to speak. They're helping us understand that this is an endurance race. That they've already run through many toils and snares. So the encouragement to keep looking to the crucified and risen Son is to find our God-given solidarity with Him and with all these people who've done this before us. We're not exempt. It's the encouragement to see the union we have with Jesus and, and with them even as we suffer and endure in life as we sacrifice our own desires for the beauty of holiness, when we don't think we want that. This is what the great cloud already knows. And this is our destiny. This is normal Christianity. So village, let's keep running. Let's keep running together. Let's lift what's drooping for each other. Let's strengthen what's weak. Let's keep going. Healing awaits. Do you believe it? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. You are good. We are not. You are loving and we are loved. And we are just hanging everything on that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.